playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol Extra Film Coated Tablets contain paracetamol. For pain relief, always read the label or leaflet. Good morning. It was titled Quinn Country. And over three nights, it told the epic story of the rise and fall of Sean Quinn. With Claire on Thursday, a contributor to that documentary, Ian Kyo of The Currency. I'd say there wasn't a house in the country where the conversation wasn't had. You know, how, how do you feel about Sean Quinn? I think that's the question, because he's a compelling character. You know, like, he managed to maintain three hours of really good television, but he is a compelling character because he's, he's multifaceted, he's interesting, and because his legacy is complicated and confusing. Um, you know, he's right. On one hand, he did something that nobody else could have done in an area that really needed it. On the other hand, he sullied his name and his reputation by sanctioning a scheme to essentially hide 500 million euro worth of assets uh, from the taxpayer. And they're contrasting and competing legacies. Mm -hmm. But he's a complex, compelling character uh, and certainly one of the most fascinating business people to have come from Ireland. But it was this comment from Alan Dukes that really put a fire under Clare Byrne. Border people have it in their blood they are living in, in communities that have, you know, a long history of violence of different kinds and they're more easily turned with than anybody else will. You know. I mean, I, and I'm not saying they're, they're, they're different animals from the rest of us, but, you know, whether they're, they have Provo links or V-Special links or whatever, you know, it's something that's nearer to the way they think than it would be to somebody in South Tipperary or anywhere like that, you know. From Wednesday night's documentary, on Thursday morning, the former Fine Gael leader and chairman of the IBRC was invited into studio. Do you regret saying that? Uh, that's, it wasn't as elegantly phrased as it might be, but the fact is I'm conscious of the fact that people in border areas have suffered more from violence than people in many other parts of the country. That's and not think, what you said. You said they have it in the their blood, that they've turned to violence uh, in a way that people from South Tipperary won't. I'm not saying everybody does that. I'm saying it happens more frequently in border areas and that's been the history, unfortunately, the deplorable history of those areas for quite some time. Listen. And I think it's necessary to point out that the atmosphere in which this all happened uh, was an atmosphere where people were very upset, uh, where people saw a danger to their livelihoods, and there was a particular kind of reaction that was seized on by people who then engaged in sabotage and in some kinds of terrible okay. violence. Okay, but, but, as but I what, said, what's happening today... I'm sorry, no, I'm well, sorry to cut sorry, across you now, yeah. because this is really important. People are really upset by those comments last night. I was watching it on, on Twitter. I have them in front of me here. Did Alan Jukes just demonise a whole community living along the border? Disgraceful statement. And I expect an apology tomorrow. The messages that we're getting in here this morning echoing the same sentiment. Alan Jukes needs to apologise immediately for his prejudice against the border counties. I am not saying by any means that the people in border counties are violent people. I'm conscious of the fact, as I've said, that they have suffered from violence more than most other parts of the country. The reason for this particular violence is, and this is another part of the programme that I would like to be quoted, the reason for the upset and the opposition was entirely misdirected. 
it was directed against people who were trying to save companies that otherwise would have gone to the wall. Not an answer, though, that satisfied Claire Byrne. And do you feel that you should apologise today? I feel that if people have been offended by that, I just ask them to accept my statements that I don't for a moment believe that people in the border areas are violent people. What I'm saying and what I wanted to reflect was that they have suffered more from violence misdirected violence than people in any other part of the country. Yeah, I, f- I found myself last night when I was sitting there putting myself into the shoes of people from those communities and I thought if somebody sat there on the television and said that people from Leash have violence in their blood I would be so upset. I can completely understand how people are outraged today as a result of those well, comments. Well I, I, can, I, can, I accept what you're saying uh, but in fact as far as I can remember and as far as I know people from Leash would not have been subjected to the same kind of violence that we have seen in border areas and particularly in the case of the Queen Group of Companies. Claire went back in. I'm not saying that systematically people who live in that area are violent That's what you said. Not. That's what you said. As you I said, said it's sort it of the not, first thing that they turn to because well of where phrased. they're from. It was not well okay, phrased. OK, well, we're getting somewhere now. You're yes. accepting that it wasn't well phrased. I've already said that. But you're not right. accepting that you shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have said it in the way that I said it. What I meant to convey was that the protests that were there and the emotion that was there were seized upon by people who are violent and who carried out acts of sabotage and despicable personal violence against people. And I deplore that. Okay. And I think that was seriously damaging and could have been even more seriously damaging to the interests of the people who depended on that group of companies for their livelihoods. Okay, just some more messages on this. I live close to the border here in Cavan and along with lots of other people who are offended by his outburst, the least he should do is apologise for his statement. Alan Jukes, another one, obviously hasn't got a clue about people living up on the border. It was disgraceful what he said. He needs to apologise. May says the phrasing by Mr Jukes is completely out of order. My dad is from Cavan and couldn't be more anti-violence and gentle. Yes, as that lady said, the phrasing was completely, it was ill-chosen. And I've said that from the beginning. All right. Alan Jukes, thank you very much for coming in. Claire Byrne with Alan Jukes. And he has since apologised unreservedly for his comments. With Ryan... Women, Mano, specifically rebel Irish women, a record of the personal experiences, recollections and songs of three women who were particularly associated with the 1916 Rising. First issued back in 1966 now, thanks to Clada Records, it's out again. Dr Mary McAuliffe is the Director of Gender Studies at UCD and a historian and she joined Rhine. And while the names of the rebel men might have been drummed into us, the women have not always been given their due. How were they sidelined? I think the Civil War had a huge part to play in that because, of course, uh, the political women, those in common man, were, for the most part, anti-treaty. And they become uh, looked at as furies, as unmanageable, ungovernable revolutionaries, as mad women. Uh, both uh, uh, W.T. Cosgrave and many of uh, those who were in the free state government just thought these women were crazy, uh, that they they were, uh, you know, had lost their natural femininity, their nurturing and caring nature because of being blooded during the War of Independence. You have to remember uh, the Irish Free State imprisoned way more women 
uh, during the Civil War than the, the Crown forces and the British government had during the War of Independence, upwards of 600. Um, and so you can see how seriously they took the threat of these political active women. Um, uh, but also there was the ideology of respectability and domesticity in a post-colonial, conservative, faith-based, dominated by the Catholic Church state, which saw women as second-class citizens, essentially, even though they had been guaranteed full and equal citizenship in the proclamation and indeed in the 22 Constitution. But for the state, the position of women was in the home, in the domestic, married, mother, the angel of the heart, basically. And one of the voices featured on the record is that of Maud Gone. I saw whole countrysides and little townlands devastated with battering ram and fire. Good, honest, hard-working people turned out of their little homes that they had built to wander the roads. The emigrant ships their only hope. I saw babies born in ditches and die in the infamous overcrowded workhouses. I swore as a girl I would devote whatever strength God had given me to the freeing of my country. Quite extraordinary to hear that voice and definitely not a woman to shuffle off quietly into the background. You, you can hear the theatricality in her voice. You could listen to her for, for, for ages because it flows and she's talking about the, the, their little houses and the immigrant ships and babies being born on the road. And that inspired Maud to commit her life to Ireland. Uh, and whatever people might say about her, about her, you know, her positioning of herself, I suppose, as um, you know, in our modern parlance, a celebrity revolutionary, she did commit her life, and she suffered because of it. You know, during the War of Independence and Civil War, constant vigils outside Mountjoy Jail, and protest at the treatment of prisoners, and then ending up as a prisoner herself and going on hunger strike in Kilmainham during this period. Uh, and continuing on being involved in the White Cross and being involved with prisoners' families uh, after this period and on into her old age. And, I mean, she does write about her experiences in in her um, memoir, although, of course, that memoir has to be taken with a a pinch of salt because that theatricality (laughs) and miscreation is in it as well of of her own position. But with all that, one has to give Maud Gone due credit for coming to a cause and committing a, a herself to it with every fibre of her being for her entire life. Dr Mary McAuliffe with Ryan on the re-release of that record, Rebel Irish Women. On the drama on one, Strutting and Fretting, written and performed by Chris McCallum. On the last night of a spectacularly unsuccessful tour of Macbeth, the lead actor is sitting in his dressing room, head in hands, trying to work out where it all might have gone wrong. Was it the medium or was it the message? And he writes a letter to his wife. Of course, these days letters date to play as much as swords or sedan chairs. We don't really write letters anymore. If we were in Macbeth's situation today, we'd, we'd just send a text. Take a selfie. Surrounded by dead Norsemen, killed the King of Norway, met some witches. They say one day I'll be King of Scotland. LOL, smiley face, send. It's funny, you know, because the, the play is called The Tragedy of Macbeth and he's clearly the main character. But nothing really matters until Lady Macbeth comes on. Up until that point, I think that as an audience, we're still wondering exactly what sort of play we've come to see. We see the court in action. 
and we think perhaps this is a political play. We hear about these battles and then we think it may be a play about wars and the military. And of course we meet these witches. And we wonder if this is a play about a confrontation between the Christian world and the forces of darkness. But then Lady Macbeth comes on and we go bingo. Suddenly we see this is a domestic tragedy. A play about a husband and a wife and the crap they do to each other behind closed doors. And that's why people have been watching it for 400 years because... In all honesty, very few of us will seriously consider murdering the head of state. Very few of us are ever going to lead an army into battle. And very few of us are going to seriously plan to have a work colleague killed, irritating though they may be. But most of us will, at some point in our lives, move in with another person. And it's often only when we share our world with someone we value above all others that we get a sense of who we really are. But it's here, having lured us in with this sense of familiarity, that we get our first real glimpse of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. And I think we realise now that they are not the same as us. The sound of a can crunching. Macbeth, as you may not have heard it before, is strutting and fretting. The drama on one. Well worth a listen back. Welcome back. This World Cup, eh? It is extraordinary what it's throwing up, particularly around politics on and off the pitch. Back in the news again this week, the Iranian national anthem, and before getting knocked out by the USA, the team did indeed sing, but only after intense pressure. With Claire, James Montague, Middle East football expert. This regime will punish your family back home uh, to, to, for, for political ends. And so it's, it's, it's clear from everybody that I've spoken to here that the, that the players are under, this, under a huge amount of pressure and the threat to them and their families' livelihoods and even their lives is a very, very real one. That's the players. But even if you're a spectator, you need to be careful because it's possible how you behave in the stands is being monitored and recorded. Within the crowd here, uh, there are thousands of Iranians here and there is a very palpable sense that there are uh, regime agents here keeping an eye on people, talking against the government, uh, keeping an eye on the diaspora, keeping an eye on activists, um, making people feel very unsafe. You were mentioning there about the spotters, the Iranian agents, some extraordinary descriptions of what people believe they have seen. Yes. Like they, they have seen people with binoculars in the crowd, not looking at the pitch, but looking at the crowd, what are they looking for? Um, the kind of security measures that we've having, having to be taking, obviously, are not something you'd expect from a football game. I mean, we're using uh, Signal, we're using kind of uh, you know kind of apps that that we could kind of hide our identity, VPNs, because people are being watched. Even journalists here, I've spoken to Iranian journalists off the record, who who are told before they left that do not do not talk to foreign journalists. You know, you will be watched. Mm. Even one guy I was talking to over his shoulder, we were being watched. Everybody's being watched. And when you think about that, that in the stadium, that people are being watched, there are pro-government propagandists as well who are kind of also there who kind of put themselves up for interview with Western journalists to give a kind of false narrative about what's happening back home. And of course, Iran is now out of the World Cup, as indeed is Qatar, which means that some of their mega fans, the ultras, can go home to Lebanon. Qatari ultras, the hardcore section of fans. Many people might have seen them at the first two games in their maroon outfits. Who are these people? 
Yeah, ultras are kind of like you know these hardcore fans that kind of kind of kind of model themselves on the Italian kind of style with kind of banners and pyrotechnics, and they're extremely dedicated to the cause and and very anti-establishment, very anti-police, very anti-authority. Um, and I noticed on the first game that the, that there was this big group of you know people acting like ultras, all dressed identically behind the goal for the Qatar uh, versus Ecuador game. And actually, what I discovered a few weeks previously was that Qatar, because there isn't really, you know, there are home fans, but none that would produce a kind of atmosphere that would kind of rival if, for instance, it was a home team, even mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia hosting a World Cup, that they um, they were basically, they were training up groups of Lebanese ultras and offering them tickets to come to the World Cup uh, and training them so that they could then become kind of Qatari ultras. And so I, was, I actually managed to talk to a few of these guys and, you know, a lot of these people come from Lebanon where there's an economic crisis. They would have absolutely no chance of watching a World Cup or visiting a World Cup. And so they 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 jumped at the chance and said, okay, you're going to pay for my food. You're going to pay for my flight and tickets. And um, what, I've got to go and chant and watch a football match? Why not? Best job I've ever had. And so that's, that's exactly what happened. Golly, James Montague with Claire. And while this week saw the Chinese government cracking down on protests over its strict COVID restrictions, what is being shown from the World Cup in China is being edited to match the party line. Raffaello Pantucci is a senior fellow at the RSIS think tank in Singapore. There has been some evidence that the Chinese media state broadcaster CCTV has been um, editing the video coverage of uh, the games uh, to try to when you know when if you imagine a football game you know various points when one team scores or something happens the cameras will often pan into the audience you know to focus on some you know celebrating fans or weeping fans or something. Well, what we appear to have noticed is during what what appears to be noticed is that during the Chinese coverage, when it cuts to the crowd, instead what it appears to cut to is other players or the coaches on the sidelines, and we don't actually see those big shots of the crowd. And the logic here is that if you were to see those, you'd see a lot of people not wearing masks. And this would somehow highlight to people in China that they still are living in this incredibly restrictive environment when the rest of the world has sort of moved on and is, you know, celebrating large public football events and so on and so forth without having to wear masks and under this very aggressive zero COVID policy. So it's kind of a reflection of the fact the government is sensitive to the fact of how unhappy people are towards the zero COVID policy. This World Cup, nothing if not political. But meanwhile, the games are continuing. So, how then to play if you were already through to the knockout stages? Goal superiority, we are reliably told. Do you lean back, take a few mindful moments? Why get stressed out? Perhaps the attitude of the Polish players they lost against Argentina and frankly didn't seem too pushed. Not so RTE's Richie Sadlier on Wednesday night's Sports Bulletin. Release the hounds. They've absolutely stunk the place out tonight. They've offered nothing. No no personality, no ambition, no fight, no pride, nothing. They've obviously heard the coaches' words and said, lads, they're going to score. Try and limit the amount they do score. Don't, don't take a blind bit of notice about trying to score ourselves. Don't mind Robert up front. Leave him up there. If he can create something grand, but let's not get near him in terms of numbers. And even if we go one goal down or two goal down, do nothing. Oh, you wouldn't want to meet him in the tunnel. But with an alternative view, work smart, not hard, here's Guillaume Balgay. They've offered nothing at all, no personality, no ambition, no fight, no pride, nothing. Do you agree? He's Irish, yeah? He is. Right, OK. Picture this, OK? 
Um, Ireland have to lose 2-0, and with that, they still go through, and they don't need to attack, and especially don't need to get yellow cards. What would he do? I know, I know, but look, <laughs> you've got to show some pride in wearing your jersey on the World Cup stage. You've got to. Uh, you have to just uh, do game management. And uh, yes, it was risky because, of course, uh, it could have been goals in the other game, another Mexico goal instead of a Saudi Arabia goal, and they would have got them out. Mm-hmm. But they were quite clear, clearly inferior to this Argentina that's growing. So sometimes accepting your fate, as in, you're not better than the rivals, let's do enough to actually go through, it's, a, it's an intelligent solution. Lazy as sin or clever as a fox? But the World Cup is giving us some choice phrases. Die Kuh vom Eis holen. Get the cow off the ice. Uh, sorry? Basically, if something goes completely wrong, it's all arse about face, and uh, you think it's all going to come to an end, and then it's just saved at the last minute. You've rescued the cow from the ice. Die Kuh vom Eis holen. And I love how we only discover these things in World Cups and when um, football commentators just bring pluck these out of the air and give us give them to us. Oh, that's brilliant. And the football commentator was Darren Maloney. But staying with phrasing words and language, why do we dither? That's Irish people, I mean. Well, PhD student at the University of Limerick, Gail Flanagan, and spotted on RTE's Brainstorm, joined Oliver to try to pin down our shifty linguistic ways we will not give a straight answer. Irish people, we don't say what we mean. What do you mean by that? Um, we 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 use different words. We're we're evasive. So mm-hmm. if you say to me, you know what I mean. If you ask me a direct question, it would nearly be unusual an Irish person asking another person a direct question. They might they might um, kind of talk, have you know start talking first of all, talk around it, and then get to the point. Um, one of the things I think you were saying, I don't suppose you were saying that earlier. I don't yeah. suppose. Even my husband this morning said, "You're not going to Aldi today." <laughs> like, well, actually, I am. But the reason, there is a logic to the way he put that. He's, he's saving my face. So if I want to say, no, I'm not going to Aldi today, it's actually the expected response. Um, we use words as well. We, you know, we soften our speech. We use, with, we've talked about the now. Yeah. We use hedging. So we use um, verbs. So I suppose saying, will you do this? Would you do it? Would you? We throw in, yeah, would yeah. you? Would you ever? Would you ever? Even if you get a chance, would you ever possibly, well, maybe not possibly, but, you know, we add in um, words to kind of soften, to hedge our bets. But surely, as in all things, we can just, well, blame the neighbours. Are societies that were colonised, like ourselves, are we mm-hmm. tend to be more evasive in our language than others? No, I mean the, the the research is showing you know where where you know the the amount of talk we do because we love talking um, is to do with more, like our hospitality, mm-hmm. um, we probably did have to be evasive. So yeah, it there may be a touch of it. Actually, we might as well take that as a yes. And of course, the English we speak here has a direct link to the Irish language. Rachel Blackmore when she won the Grand National, the mm-hmm. the entry Grand National. Um, she said, I, I can't believe I'm after winning the national. <laughs> and the observer, the English knew, because it was the English national, the observer put in, in brackets, they felt she was missing something with this after. <laughs> and they actually put in, I just can't believe I'm talking 
after winning the national. Whereas what this after is, Completely and it comes to the Irish construction. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she was just after winning the national. Yeah. We're just after, I'm just after having my breakfast. Yeah. Um, you know, so having that, there's no the kind of the, the it's the after perfect, and that definitely comes from the Irish. We might and another go, good. Oh, yeah. go on. Sorry, you you have another good one. No, Sorry, I love, I love, you get me talking. <laughs> yeah, I know, I won't we won't be able stop. to stop, I know, yeah. Sorry, what did they just say? Oh, yeah. go on, sorry, you, you have another good one. Sorry, I love, I Oh, sorry, we do love a bit of sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, God, sorry. We're, oh, we do, we're sorry, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry now for not having a good answer there. Sorry. <laughs> I mentioned our, uh, an Ardlo Hanlon uh, mugging story, which you reference in your article. I'm going to have a little listen to his, um, it, it's, a, it's a really good example of our over-apologetic nature. I was on a bus when I was about 18 and um, I was mugged upstairs on a bus. This guy approached me with a knife and he said, can I have all your money? And I gave him whatever I had and and then I apologised. I said, you know, sorry, I've only got a fiver. (laughs) (laughs) And then, but then he apologised. He said, he said, you know, sorry, I've got a drug problem. And I was, oh, you know, sorry to hear that. (laughs) I mean, where does that come from? I know, and we just, we bump into people and we say sorry. It's just, yeah, it's, it's our, we've, we have elevated explicit politeness. So, you know, sorry, thanking, please. We, we've we elevated that to, a, I suppose, a higher level. And it goes back to, you have to engage in conversation. So yeah. even if, you know, you bump into me, my reaction is to open my mouth and say something and that's sorry, you know, and then we get into it. We nearly get into a conversation about it. That could go back to colonial times. And yes. Not that I've seen, re- read research on that, but, you know, it is. It's, it's fascinating. Them across the water. PhD student Gail Flanagan with Oliver. Back in a bit. Sorry. Welcome back. What shade of green or Gen Z? Fern? Apple? Pistachio, maybe? Well, for 16 to 24-year-olds surveyed by the ESRI on the environment, they're a pretty deep shade of green, moss even. The majority want a ban on non-essential domestic flights and car-free zones in towns and cities. Go the bike. To tell us more, here's Pete Lunn with Claire. What's really interesting about this study, and there's a few things, but particularly interesting to us is the degree to which young people are prepared to support quite radical policies that would clearly impact their future lives. You know, so as you say, banning domestic flights, car zones in towns and city centres, they're, they're very much in favour of taxing things that pollute as well. I mean, including many of them saying that, you know, they'd accept a tax on meat and higher fuel taxes. And, you know, a majority saying that, you know, that they they either want to eat less meat in the future or, you know, 30% saying that actually they want to eat a plant-based diet in the long term. Now, of course, these are intentions, not behaviours, but nevertheless, I mean, it signals a desire for more radical change than we might have anticipated, Mm -hmm. I think. But while the intentions are good, they did find a gap. We had a knowledge test as part of this study where essentially what we did was we gave a list of activities to this group of young people. So this is 16 to 24-year-olds. It's a nationally representative sample. And we gave them a list of activities and we said, look, can you categorise these activities into those that have a high impact, a medium impact and a low impact on emissions? So to give you an example, you know, taking one less long-haul flight a year, that's a high impact behaviour. Avoiding littering, 
you know, good thing for us all to do, but it's a low impact behavior. So could they categorize into high, medium and low? Now, it's not much of an exaggeration to say that if we'd rolled a dice, we'd have got similar answers. In other words, the level of knowledge about what causes emissions, behaviors that causes emissions among this group of young people, representative national sample was really pretty poor. Um, so they don't know what are the high impact behaviors versus the low impact behaviors. Now, I should stress, we've done this with an adult sample previously and got fairly similar findings. But we were quite surprised by this because we thought the young sample would do better than the adult sample. And actually, they haven't. So there's a real knowledge gap there. Interesting. Pete Lunn of the ESRI. But filling that knowledge gap for us all, fill about your haze and hot mess and one high impact activity flying. And while we all know hopping on flights willy-nilly is not exactly great for the planet, there may be even more to aviation emissions than we had thought. If you want to give yourself a case of itchy feet, there really is nothing quite like looking at the vapour trails coming out of the back of a jet plane, crisscrossing a clear blue sky. Some people look at them, though, and they see conspiracy. They say the government is trying to give us COVID-19, the government is trying to vaccinate us against COVID-19, and so on. Here's the uncomfortable bit, though. Vapour trails or contrails are actually at the centre of a conspiracy of silence about the climate damage that aviation is doing. They've hid behind a veil of secrecy because no government has acted to lift that veil. The responsibility of the industry is to be honest. and There's an awful lot of distraction being thrown in the air. If left unchecked, scientists now believe that aviation is toxic enough to make the goal of holding warming to 1.5 degrees impossible. It would induce about 0.1 degree of warming by 2050 and something between 0.2 to 0.4 degrees by the end of the century. And now a new study shows that emissions from planes are doing anywhere from twice to three times more global warming than airlines or governments are acknowledging. And while we count and measure aviation's CO2 emissions, what we don't take into account, all the other chemicals that go along with it. Aviation's true climate impact, the CO2 and the non-CO2 emissions when added together, jumps the aviation sector in Europe up into third or fourth place in the polluters' league table. That's pretty big. So what then of the airline response? Well, neither Ryanair or Aer Lingus wanted to talk to Philip about this research. But one man happy to go on the record, Andrew Murphy of the government's Climate Change Advisory Council and an expert on aviation emissions. There's not much transparency as to what's in airline fuel. Um, And airlines haven't been particularly forthcoming in disclosing or making public um, what are the particles in their fuel. If they were to do so, we would have a much more precise understanding of aviation's non-CO2 effects. They've hid hid behind a veil of secrecy because no government has acted to lift that veil. If you go into a car forecourt and stock up on petrol or diesel, you know there's limits in what's in that fuel. There isn't the same transparency or regulation as to the limits of what's in aircraft fuel. It all sounds a little bit kind of big tobacco 1960s, 1970s in its strategy. 
are the airlines aware of what the science is saying or would they be able to legitimately claim, well, we didn't actually know how bad the impact of our industry was? The issue of non-CO2, climate and aviation's non-CO2, has been around since at least the late 90s in an IPCC report on this issue. They've known about it for decades and the science is getting more and more firm on how devastating the impact is. Mm, hot mess with Philip. Well, after all of that, is it time to distract ourselves? Look, shiny baubles, tinsel. of the Darcy show but make no mistake we are right in it now ho ho and ho and if you are coming down with the tinsel the present is the food shop the drinks great if you can make a dinner on the 10th office party 16th don't forget the Santa hat fundraiser deep breath here's psychologist Alison Keating on drive time busy 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 but I think a lot of people like and when when at least me, wherever about yeah. a lot of people are finding in the run up to Christmas already, I'm looking at my calendar, I was saying this earlier, and I have so much on already. And I'm looking forward to every single one of the things that I have in the diary. I really am. But I'm also like, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm tired looking at it. <laughs> I hear you. And I don't know what it is about this year. Maybe it's because of what we just come out of. But there's a lot on at this time of year. Do you know what? There's a lot on all the time and then when we add on top of it um, I just think that the stress can really just build that perhaps has been building I think it's a, a really reflective time of year for people and sometimes people can feel somewhat disappointed and under pressure that perhaps you know they think oh maybe I should have had that done already this year and so we put ourselves under kind of internal pressure but I do think there's external pressure as well like perfect Christmas this perfect Christmas that yeah, and I think that word, even even if you don't and you're not striving to have a perfect Christmas, that pressure is there. Certainly true. So that led to a radical thought: Why not move Christmas to January? We do want to connect, and that is a wonderful part of Christmas that it's about connection. But sometimes I think, wouldn't it be great if we spread it out a bit longer? And sometimes yeah. I do actually make things for January, and I kind of look forward to it as well because it can be a kind of a dark month. Oh, you so can't sometimes... say to people, Alison, look, have a great Christmas, I'll see you in January. <laughs> but you know, I really uh, think be- you because... should be able to do that. No, 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 wait, I'll yeah. tell you why. Like, they Hang make on, all Hold the it difference there. to me now Hold if I there. just have my social commitments and put half of them into January okay, Sarah, and then look, I'm done. That's look, great. Look, Sarah and Alison, have a great Christmas and I'll see you in January. That yeah. means, Sarah and Alison, you're on the B list. It doesn't actually. Well, by cripes, it does. Well, you're on my B list anyway. Like, you know, like I reckon if we could have, you know, if you have a very close friendship, you know, or a very yeah. understanding friendship, I think there are plenty of particularly parents out there, or maybe it's not particularly parents, I'm speaking from the point of view of a parent, yeah. who could just say, guys, there's so much on. Can we just say, you know, 14th of January when, when we can breathe a bit? 
I actually genuinely think that's good. And I do think it actually, rather than being on the B team, that actually it shows that you have a close connection that you can say that. Mm. Yeah. I don't think so. Do you know why? Because <laughs> you'll all say, right, Sarah and, and Alison, you'll be all happy with yourselves at your little arrangement. <laughs> and then we'll all be meeting with the real friends and they'll be saying, what's wrong with Sarah and Alison? They're a bit weird, aren't they? <laughs> no, I think, I, Alison, I think we're on to something. I, I have a couple so of groups you're, you're online. They're going to be sending messages to straight away as soon as I finish up here. You're on to the B list, I'll tell you. From drive time. But if we must keep Christmas in December, you can trust the National Broadcaster to help you navigate the season's do's and don'ts. With Brendan, holiday films and Gornia Humphreys, director of the Dublin International Film Festival, is not a woman for holding back. What have you got against love, actually? Where do, where do you start with that? <laughs> I mean, I think the thing is, a very important part, I think, of Christmas movies is where you saw them and, and your relationship to that first yeah. image. And I actually saw it in a cinema in Amsterdam, in the, one of the great world cinemas called the Tuchinsky film. Uh, it's an art deco. It's really beautiful. See, I told you this is going to be an elevated discussion, I, people. But that's yeah. the problem. I was at a documentary festival and I went in because it was coming out <laughs> and I sat down and this horrendous, cynical, shallow piece of, you know, uh, such, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, cynical is probably the best word for it from my head. It's nine different stories. All the characters are horrible. Uh, It's shallow. It's incredibly creepy. Uh, It's a story about people basically kind of uh, sort of obsessing with with kind of yeah, innocence. Yeah, it is creepy. And the yeah, the yeah. men are awful. The women are 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 barely there, um, and it's filled with all these soundtracks, sort of like moments that kind of people go, "Oh, it's lovely," and it has this warmth to it. It's not. It's deeply cold and badly made, and it's too long. Yeah, and I'm sure sandwiched between two Iranian documentaries, it probably uh, came across <laughs> as a bit saccharine. Okay, we could have played a. Get down off that fence, sister. And if you're looking for a man to write a card like a stamp or do up that Santa sign, we found him. Please, please, uh, hang on, I'm not finished. Please and thanks. Happy Christmas. Joe Duffy. Okay, that's done. Have it done. Take a photograph of it now. We'll put it up on Twitter during this break. If you want a more professional sign done, I will do a more professional sign. I will do it in in calligraphy. I'll do it in black permanent marker. I will laminate it. I will laminate it to keep it uh, weatherproof and I will put it in the post. Okay, bye-bye. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Bye. And then Ryan, a man for the board games, but just not this one. Monopoly is a dangerous game. It, it, it leads to rows. It exposes people's um, shortcomings really quickly. They're, they're vicious. People, get, get, people start stealing. Um, people do weird things. Monopoly brings out the worst in people. It's just not good. Golly, last time we checked your hotels. But if all this is too much, too soon, don't worry. On the Darcy Show, they are easing us in. No chestnuts roasting too early here. Oh no, he has a system. Of course he does. Well, we have this system. It's a it's a, it's a bauble rating system for songs to make sure we don't overstep the mark, uh, to make sure we don't get too festive too quickly. And no one wants that. Because if, if, if you go too festive too quickly, then where do you go? There's nowhere to go. You don't leave yourself room. So we have the bauble system from one to five. Um, just so you'll know what we're doing over the next weeks when it comes to music. Getting out the spreadsheet. Briefly, one bauble, songs that sound a bit Christmassy and yet do not mention Christmas. Every woman, every man 
Now that, that's a one bobbler, you see. That's a one bobbler. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Everybody take a stand. Join the caravan of love. And from that little quiver in the tree right through to more snow, more bells, eggnog, whatever that is, roaring fires and driving home for Christmas, finally bringing us to the Darcy Five Bobbler. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Five baubles. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will... Well, that is too manic by half. Oh no, not there yet. So we will end with a Darcy one bobbler. That is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. I was following the eye, was following the eye, was following the eye, was following the eye.